0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their cultural experiences and influences, the books they read, the music they listen to, the art and artists that have fascinated them. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Julie Merritt. Born in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia in 1970, Julie moved to Michigan in the US as a child and now lives in New York City. She studied at Kalamazoo College in Michigan, at the University Sheikh Anta Diop in Dakar in Senegal and then at the Rhode Island School of Design. Judy's in the middle of a major touring retrospective. It began at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 2019 before travelling to the High Museum in Atlanta and is now at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York before it travels to the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis later this year. And I think a retrospective is always a good moment to talk to artists, a point where they've taken stock of their works and assess their own achievements. And Julie's is one of the most consistent and I think consistently engaging bodies of work made so far for this century. From her earliest work in the Whitney exhibition, Migration Direction Map made in 1996 when she was still a student, you can see the territory that she's explored ever since, a geopolitical theme explored through complex marks which evoke diagrams or calligraphy. She's referred to those marks and the myriad shapes in her paintings as characters, and they're almost like an invented alphabet, and the combinations of them, often in flurries or even blizzards, draw you deep into her work. Judy's paintings can't be glimpsed and forgotten. hold you in their clutches. That's also partly because of their scale, they're often vast and panoramic. In many ways, Julie's a perfect guest for this podcast because she wears her influences on her sleeve, directly referring to other artists and to writers and to musicians, particularly in recent years. Just as the marks in her work are dense and complex, so too are the layers of influences. Julie's also a highly collaborative artist, she and the British artist Tacita Dean have shown together and Tacita made two films of Julie which feature in the current retrospective. Julie and her partner Jessica Rankin have created a body of collaborative work and Julie also founded an artist residency programme in Deniston Hill in upstate New York with her fellow artists Paul Pfeiffer and Lawrence Troyes. As you'll hear she also worked with the jazz musician and artist Jason Moran as she made her enormous works for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in 2017. There's a clear arc to Julie's work so far. In the 2000s, architectural drawings and cartography, often pointedly chosen to relate to global hotspots, provide a kind of armature for her painterly and drawn improvisations. But that structure has gradually become less prominent and in recent years there's a major shift as she's used photographs from broadcast media as the basis for her compositions, blurring them and inverting them before adding her dizzying array of gestures which continues to grow so it now includes loops and dashes, lozenges images, arcs, airbrushed hazes, stenciled shadows, hints of the human body and much more. Colour, once more incidental in her work, has now become central. The images that she uses as the ground for her paintings are diverse but often linked in their urgency, from climate change to police brutality, Black Lives Matter protests, white supremacist rallies and global human rights abuses. So I began our conversation by asking Judy, how does she go about choosing them?
1: Well, I have been working with mediated images or images from the media for a long time. And there was a time where I would look at a particular situation like the civil war in Syria or, you know, the American engagement in Iraq and really kind of like try to get as many images of a particular type that I was searching for. But recently, over the last like three, four years, I've been using these images that somehow like something will happen like Grenfell Tower, and the burning of that. And it's these complicated things like that occur. But there are certain types of images that seem to be the most haunting of that moment that somehow stay with me or haunt me the most. And those are the images that I tend to usually work with. And when I blur it, it, it becomes, uh, it somehow carries uh, the, without recognizably understanding that image, it carries the kind of psyche of that image in a way. And I'm most interested in that.
0: So when you begin working over it, Does anything in the form of that image dictate those marks that you then make over that background image?
1: For sure. I think that when I'm painting into that image, that image has to be compelling enough as a blurred image for me to be able to engage with it. And there are times where I'll have a blurred painting on the wall in the studio for two years before I start actually drawing into it. So sometimes it'll have in the date of the painting a span of three years. It's not necessarily that it takes three years of actually working on that painting, but that that image stays with me and I don't necessarily find a point of entry into it until a particular time. But yeah, I'm definitely responding to the blurred image as a blurred image and what that brings up and how I can find a point of entry into that.
0: And I wonder how much your practice shifted as a result of going from working from very structured architectural images to that blurred image. Do you feel like your language inevitably changed or do you feel like there's a sort of continuum in that?
1: No, I think there was a huge um, evolution in that moment. There reached a point in the work where the architectural language it, that kind of became this grid that, if, if anything, didn't provide the kind of context I wanted, but became a limit on what could be possible for the marks and that was usually determined by the scaling that would happen with the record, with any form of like a window is a particular scale no matter of like how big or small you did that and so for for there to be a different form of freedom and liberation in the marks i needed to completely eliminate that architectural grid or context and in doing that something else opened up completely. And I think that that allowed for a very different um, evolution of the mark making and what could happen in the actual painting in what would happen spatially, but also in the dynamic between the mark and the blur and other levels of painting that go into it.
0: And also there's a sort of, to me it seems like, there's this really important shift that happens between you having a kind of scaffolding for the image through the architecture and then the marks over the blurred photographs become a kind of scaffolding or or, or there's a sort of tension in some ways between the different structures in the works made with the blurred photographs.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, in the end, I think there was the the effort of the battle between the mark and the structure. And then when the mark really tried to find its own independence and, and was able to kind of invent something else on its own, that became very exciting in a different way. And what was possible and what could be possible in the imagination in that other space also became super potent for me. And, um, and it wasn't the kind of need for the the situation of the space was became really unnecessary. Especially as the situation of the place became a ruin. The ruin became this convoluted type of space anyway, where something else could emerge from that. And then I became much more interested in that other emergent thing rather than the actual infrastructure or any of that form of the collective. So the, so the mediated photograph or the photograph from the news media becomes this other form of that space in, in a way.
0: I'm really interested in what you've called in the past characters and the idea of these visual neologisms, this sort of invented language on you, in on, in your work. Can you say something about how you go about making those marks? Is it is it total improvisation? Or can you sort of set about a body of work at one time where, the, where a similar kind of mark is being made repetitively, almost like a rhythm?
1: Well, both. So earlier... It really did evolve and change earlier in um, in the effort of trying to find out how I related to the mark making I was been making i reduced the marks to a very very small scale, and in reducing them um, just making these drawings I, I I came to this kind of realization that. The the marks as they would repeat in a particular way took on particular kinds of characteristics, or, or and so I started to think of them as having these forms of social agency. But uh, the reason I called them characters is, is I didn't want to be too definitive with them in a particular way, and so in that sense they 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 operate more in this way that you're talking about, almost like notationally or um, as uh, it, almost like signifiers in a score, or something like that, like in terms of talking about rhythms and and and, and patterns and. Different forms of visuals that would occur that way, but then as I became to really push the mark making and, and 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 evolve it, you realize that no real like no mark is really a new mark in a way. Like marks, these we've been making marks for millennia. They're like something that are part of who we are in the most fundamental aspects of being human. And I think that in trying to find a way to invent something else with that with that language. It, that's where I became kind of started to think more about the mark making and the, what would happen in the paintings as these visual neologisms, where there were parts that looked like handprints or parts that, that make David Hammond's handprint or Jasper John's handprint, but could even go back you to like early cave paintings that you can actually find these same kinds of gestures and many other forms of making, you know, Pannoni and so many others. So I think like these recall certain things, and then other gestures feel more like. Kara Walker elbow or the side of a Kara Walker silhouette, but also maybe a Gustin foot. So instead of resisting that, I became kind of more interested in playing with these different kind of emergent references that would come up in the mark making and, and twist them into this other space, allowing that all to exist at the same time as I was making these paintings and embedding my mark making into that. But I think like for the reason I find the idea of the vi- visual neologism interesting is that the neologism becomes this, is an invention of language from what is at hand the, when the language is not enough, when the language that exists doesn't articulate that experience enough. And how can these paintings talk about this multitude in a different way? Like, how do I find space in painting? And to me, that's that becomes this ripe place for that for thinking that way.
0: One of the sort of deep pleasures in your art for me is that getting lost you know being immersed and I wonder is there ever a moment when you in the making of them get lost and do you treat that as a sort of welcome factor or does it get dangerous to a certain extent?
1: no, it's the necessary factor. Like if I can't get lost, then then I'm in real trouble. And that's where paintings become derivative or not interesting. So my my interest in painting and getting into the studio is actually finding ways to get lost, is ways to access this deep kind of um, flow in work and in, in intuitive work that allows for something else to happen. Where Um, something else occurs in the painting that hasn't occurred before. And that's what becomes really um, interesting. And usually you have to go through a state of actually finding yourself being very self-conscious and then it's instantaneous when you're in that space, you know it. And when you come out of that space, you know it, and it's best to stop, put down the brushes and stop, as opposed to continuing to try and push through that. So for me, that's absolutely necessary.
0: And so in that final moment, when there's that connection between you the artist and the viewer through this work, how crucial is it that there is a sort of element of that initial feeling and indeed that initial image which prompted the work that emerges from it? Or does it, in a way, is that less important than just a a thorough engagement with the work in some way?
1: I'm less concerned by the kind of readability of that image. I'm more interested in the what is, it, what is subconsciously suggested by that. So, for example, this recent painting that I made last year was um, taken from an image from several years ago, which was the far-right rally that took place in Charlottesville here in the U.S., um, where you had basically kind of these Klan rallies without hoods, with people carrying these torches and being very kind of comfortable being uh, photographed and being known to be these kind of intense... Um, nationalist racists and being very comfortable being that way. And it brought up really old wounds in this country and and reopened them. And I think that um, for me, there's something about that behavior that has been part of the Horror story of this country that is almost subliminal. So what I did with one of those images is I inverted it and made this Roy Shack out of it to play with these ideas of the subconscious, and and that Roy Shack then becomes the the point of departure. And then there's this painting that takes place on top of it. Well, I ended up titling the painting "A Mercy" after Toni Morrison's novel. There were many reasons for that, but it became this kind of place of like digesting. All the complexities that are suggested in that land, in that narrative, in that, in that kind of the making of a place, but also um, what happens in this painting that becomes like this very, it's very minimal in terms of its color. It's black, white, gold, red and blue, I think at the most. And it has this very um, haunting feel to it. It's not so necessary to know what the source is to get to, to have that experience of that form of haunting, I think, in the painting.
0: And that speaks to the very complex relationship that your work has with time, right? So, in the sense that you know you're referring to what is you know yes, it's a couple of years old, but it's a current event, effectively. But that, but in referring to the Morrison novel, you're you're evoking a passage of time and, and deep history, effectively.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, and yet I feel like the image and what happens in that almost brings up a form of palpable terror. This haunting type of terror, like, uh, uh, in the sense that it brings that up as a palpable kind of very emergent cur- current thing, but there's this historic, like that these these other nods become these historic contexts for that. You know that that novel goes back 400 years, the beginning of the making of this country in this way, and and her complex understanding of each character and the complete humanity of each character in that in negotiating the making of this place.
0: was the first artist whose work you loved
1: my first real memory with a work of art that i really remember being moved by was a rembrandt out of my mother's rembrandt book and it was um the sacrifice of isaac that painting stuck with me it was the first time i really remember being completely and utterly transfixed and moved and it was from a reproduction in a book
0: how wonderful and do you still bring rembrandt with you today is he still there and present in your mind
1: Absolutely. I was asked to write about um, artwork in the Frit collection that was important to me, and it was the self-portrait, Rembrandt's late self-portrait. And he's been an artist who, whenever I encounter the work, I'm amazed by the humanity and and what he's able to capture in the eyes of the various sitters and sense of being there that has always been kind of transfixing and and, and spirited for me.
0: Yeah, there's a sort of sense in which you're looking at a character who, through their dress, is undeniably historical and yet they're so present aren't they in the room you know you feel them as humans
1: absolutely you feel them and their skin and their brush and the mark and the kind of full presentness of it usually it's in the eyes the expression of the eyes and 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 the face but this yeah they're they're very moving paintings they are indeed he's been a touchstone my whole life i think
0: so is rembrandt the historical artist you turn to the most or are there others
1: well, Caravaggio is another who's been really important to me since I was in my 20s. Um, I started going to Rome then, and I go back. I have go almost every year for the last 30 years, and I visit the French church every time to see that installation. I'm taken back every time I see it. I see new things. Caravaggio is a major touchstone. Another one would be Diego Rivera for the DIA murals, which were some of the first murals I saw when we came to the States and in, in Detroit, and those were also super... Um, moving and kind of something that were always in my consciousness.
0: And you made that recent work, didn't you, after Caravaggio's conversion on the way to Damascus. Why did you choose that particular work to base a work on?
1: Because there's something in that painting when I made it that emerged that reminded me of two things in that painting. One, the light, the kind of blinding light and what happens. And then the other was the kind of construction that happens with this figure under the horse completely you know kind of arms open and in ecstasy looking up at this at this being moved by this revelation and the and then the horse's ass kind of facing the center part of the, there was this emergent of these different the, those different kind of constructions between those figures that um I felt felt reminiscent in this painting and this and so the painting kind of brought that painting back to me a
0: lot Michael Armitage came on this um, podcast <laughs> and he told me that you took him to see the Pietà by Titian in Venice and because you knew that it was going to blow him away, presumably because it had done to you.
1: Yeah, it, that painting is a painting like no other. Venice is filled with incredible works. And when I first went to Michael's studio, I asked him about Venice and had he been there to see, And, and, I, and when we realized we would be in Venice together, I just, I was so excited to go study all these paintings with him and show him those. But that, that Pieta, that, what happens in that painting and what happens, not just with the paint, but with what happens to an artist. Painting at that late stage, painting for their lives in that way, and and how that paint dematerializes in, into just paint, a life that dematerializes into that is really moving and profound. And yeah, that was a great experience. I think Michael went back several times after that
0: <laughs> to that painting. Indeed, he did. He, he's uh, it had a, an enormous effect on him. Clearly, um, while we're talking about contemporary artists, which contemporary artists do you most admire?
1: It's such a range. I mean David Hammonds is a imp- very important artist to me and has been so for, for a very long time. Uh, Paul Pfeiffer is another artist I really admire. I think he's um, amazing. Michael is another artist who I admire. Carol Walker has been a touchstone of mine since her work evolved and started to be to be seen. Steve McQueen is another artist who I think um, not just in visual art but in film is amazing. Tacita Dean is another artist who I've admired and who's been an important touchstone. Neri Bagramian, Jan Vo, I can go on.
0: <laughs> it's obvious to ask you about about Tacita because she's, you know, she's somebody you've directly collaborated with. She's She made that extraordinary pair of films that, that she's shown quite widely now. Um, and that's, you know, that idea of artists whose language on the surface looks quite different sort of collaborating working together it strikes me speaks to the this sort of particular connection that artists can develop it's not necessarily about shared language is it it's about connections that are much broader and sometimes much deeper i guess
1: yeah and for me i feel like both tacita and her partner matthew hale are artists who are so immersed in making and in thinking about art and 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 culture in that way i think what i've learned Immensely from both of them is this place of just following kind of chance and possibility that can emerge from the kind of a freer kind of engagement with making, knowing that everything that is really important comes there, will be there, will will arrive there. And that liberatory way of approaching creative work, it was, I think, I think a a real testament to like becoming close with them. And really feeding each other. And I feel like the, those two, plus Jessica and I, that we have the relationship with our family and other friends that really have, have, have kind of encouraged and promoted that way of thinking and that form of dialogue that's very intuitive, and, but, but also really we're kind of all invested in kind of understanding and continuing and participating in a, in a tradition that has been important to all of us. And it's really interesting because we're really, really different in so many ways and come from very different places and participate and engage in the world in, in similar ways but in also d- very different ways. So, um, but our friendship is a deep one and we're constantly in touch no matter how far we are from one another.
0: I wanted to ask you a bit more about Hammonds because I saw a talk where you said that you have one of the body prints. Is that right? You live with one of the body prints, the one with the puzzle pieces.
1: Yes, one, a really good one. <laughs> It's a, it, it is. It's a beautiful one. I was able to, tr- to get that a, 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 a about 10 years ago. And it's a, it, it, it is basically a touchstone I look at every day and try and make something that could even come near it. I think it's such a haunting and amazing piece and w- something that happens in it that's transformative. It really transforms the more you look at it from what you think of as a face to a very different kind of presence and third eye. And it's profound.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, it makes me think about, and I, this is something I I talk to artists about quite a lot because it's it's a, it's a question that really interests me. It's about Matisse had um, a painting, a bathers painting by Cezanne, which he which he had in his flat and his studio, and he and he would look at it every day. Yeah, but what's interesting is that the way he talked about it. And the, way, and the way he talked about it as a sort of like his whole family were invested in it was that it was like a kind of it was as much an important thing for him on a moral level as it was in terms of the actual image and the, and the visual language. I wonder, is, is it a bit like that with Hammonds and you?
1: Absolutely. And the Hammonds is in between two other pieces that are, like I think, important for our whole family. One is this group of Richard Tuttle etchings that are really completely saturated color. There's this kind of very amazing freedom and chemistry in them that... I have have that are the background of our, every single meal we have. Our children—they've grown up. We're looking at them. There are talks in front of them. They play. I have videos of them performing plays in front of them. And so then it's that that the Hammonds, and then these amazing Glenn Ligon etchings that are these canceled proofs. That are, he's another very important artist to me, and. On the other side, there's a Daniel Joseph Martinez print that was from the Whitney tags, one of those, like, the collection of those tags. So these are the, this is the cosmos the children are growing up in. This is the context of this house, you know? It's like the tags that say, I can't ever imagine be, wanting to be white or something like that. And then you have the Glenn Ligon canceled proofs. Um, you have this Hammond's, like, thing that is like a shaman that is that becomes like the 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 kind of you know token or this this really important presence in the house and then you have these incredible kind of um amazing tuttles that are about the alchemy of all of this together so I I love the way you describe that as almost like this moral kind of context as well as much as um a visual
0: so what about in the studio do you have works of art pinned up around you some artists can't have other artists' images around them because it, they feel it seeping too much into their consciousness, and others <laughs> like want as much as they can around them because you know for, for to, to to feed off, if you like.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, my studio goes through those changes quite a bit. Sometimes I'll have a lot of information put up, really intentionally to inform. And when I was younger, I would do that a lot, especially with. Um, research images that I was collecting. I would really have a whole wall that was constantly being... I would add, and, and it would be this kind of montage of, of, of various photographs. First, I think it's just you get it to a different place, but I'm more interested in how the paintings engage with one another and how they're related. So I'm constantly rehanging the paintings in the studio, and I have very little else up. Although my desk is covered with and cluttered with... And my the kind of couch area, with coffee table, is covered with books and magazines and articles or images... What I was thinking about recently as I was hanging this p- painting at the Whitney, the last painting that I finished called Ghost Tim After the Raft, is there's this amazing kind of uh, the, the kind of what I realized in the museum, the, the intensity of the color in this painting and the palette of that, this almost fu- Afrofuturist kind of sensibility that I wasn't thinking about in the same way before i made it but what it reminded me of was this painter whose name i can't recall right now but it was i can tell you where it is it's in rome but these wings of these angels are painted he's a contemporary of giotto and they're they are they are not sure if he was his teacher or or a contemporary but they're very old and they're up in the area where the the nuns would be in the church the wings of these angels are painted like these afrofuturist visions of some future i mean they're the 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 intensity of the color and the pigment in them but also the kind of the, the, the color theory that worked with them the green to red and the blues and how that interacted and I had seen those in Rome the year before but it was so interesting when I was hanging at the Whitney that though, that, that image came back to me in full kind of glory if you will and, and, and it was amazing to think that you don't need to have those things up to have those be that's so formative it becomes this they become embedded in there and somehow come back in this other way and it was interesting to have that experience
0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries, Cork Street in London has been the home of modern and contemporary art since the early 20th century and is where the UK careers of some of the greatest artists of recent times, artists like Francis Bacon, Max Ernst and Paul Klee, were launched. In 2019, the Pollen Estate doubled the amount of gallery space on the street as part of its commitment to the Cork Street Galleries initiative, reigniting Cork Street's reputation for innovation and cementing its status as an internationally significant destination for art in the 21st century. Cork Street Galleries accepts proposals for permanent occupations as well as temporary residences. For more information, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Let's talk about museums and galleries. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently?
1: I guess in, the, in, in New York, I would say the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It, it was a place that, went, since it opened in the, at the end of the summer, um, after the quarantine that I went to the most um, I probably went every other week while, during that time or, or every, every, once every few weeks. And it, it, has been, it has been a way to really travel and move through not just time, but um, different, go to different places. And it's been, it, was, it was very moving for me to be able to, after however many months of not looking at art, to, to be able to go back in there. And the first show I went back to see was the Sahel show. Um, This show that was actually closing that had been up for about a year. And I felt like that very fortunate to have seen that show and that new scholarship on that work. And then um, and I've been going regularly back there. I mean, but that, that I always went to the Met a lot. But I feel like especially during this time, it's been really profound to be able to have that museum in the city where where we live. In the UK, there's a, my favourite museum is the, is the, well, there's two. There's the National Gallery where I go every time I go. And of course, the British Museum. But the National Gallery has been a treasure also. It's a touchstone in, in, in London for me.
0: When you go to the Met, are there certain rooms that you will always go to in a sense that you can't go to the Met without seeing a certain work or a certain group of works?
1: Yeah, I love to go see Wanda Herrera, um, the Velazquez painting. I I always am moved by that room. But sometimes, if I don't have time, I won't do that. I'll go to see something specific and I'll go see that and then leave. Other times, I'll go and I'll get lost in areas that I don't investigate so often and um, get lost in, you know, pottery, Ming Dynasty pottery, and try and look at something else. But recently, I went to see. Uh, what was it that just opened and it was and the members line was so long um it was a members preview line and we didn't we just didn't want to wait in that line so we went and looked at we went back and to to look at the european galleries european painting galleries which have been rehung recently and so that was really again a different experience and then going to see the babylonian galleries uh, you know there's a so you can really travel in time and you know i there so i don't always go back to the same works but there are definitely touchstones in those museums that i love
0: uh, which culture experience changed the way that you see the world?
1: It's a very complicated question, but I will say one that I feel like is a very visceral experience I had was when I was in college. I was in studying in Dakar, Senegal, and I went to a Yusundur concert in Dakar. And I have never experienced such an incredible infectious kind of in, uh, ex- exuberant kind of context or setting. It was the number of artists who opened up for Yusundur. The entire city was on fire to see this show. It was the most probably crowded scene I've ever been in, trying to even just get to the stadium. It was like going through, like you were being corralled by people. And I think that was probably the most transformative kind of one singular experience that I've had in that way, cultural experience, which was just completely
0: transformative. And he's got such an extraordinary voice, isn't it? Very haunting at times, Yusundur's voice.
1: Yeah, and such an enormous following there, right? He's such, a, such an amazing figure for Senegalese. And this was in 1990, 1991, so it was a, it was a while ago. And, but the city was electrified by him, and you could feel that, the pride of Yusundur being there. They're like you, know, they're, you hear Yusundur in the streets all the time, but to have him come to town and do this amazing stadium performance, it was incredible.
0: How wonderful. Let's talk about literature. Which, Which writers or poets do you return to?
1: I feel like I spend my adult life catching up on the on like the classics that I missed out studying when I was young. I ha, I suffer from insomnia and one and I spend my nights um, when I'm not able to sleep actually listening. If I read books, if I read books, I'll stay up the whole night. But I listen and I've gotten through many many um, great books by listening to them, such um, like the Bronte sisters and Tolstoy and books that I that that I've gone back to again. Uh, Moby Dick was a recent one last year that I went back to again, but. The re- Recent books that I've read that have been, or, or authors that have been important to me, like I said, Toni Morrison, Baldwin for sure, James Baldwin. Um, Ocean Vong's new book, um, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, was really, I think, a moving book I read. I read it just this year. Alvaro Enrique, who wrote Sudden Death. That was a really terrific book, I think. And I love Roberto Bolaño. And there's a lot of South American authors that I'm super into. And then also Haruki Murakami, um, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, was a really important book to me and I've gone back to again and again. I guess poets, I'm working with a poet, Robin Cost Lewis. She's somebody who I think has been really important to me since her first book came out. And we're trying to do a project together. And so I've been really rereading and thinking about her a lot. Fred Moten's another poet, Brenda Shaughnessy, Mark Bibbins for contemporary poets. Um, So I don't know, those are, that's a list. But I, I, I mean, again, it it depends on where you are and what time you're in and what you're really immersed in, you know?
0: Yeah. But it's, it's really notable to me looking through your work that, 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 writers become name checked after a certain point yeah and like for instance you you mentioned that you titled a work of mercy after tony morrison then you've also mentioned brenda lozano you've mentioned chris abani you've mentioned jasmine ward for instance which
1: are all writers who are important to me as well <laughs> yes
0: but were you sort of directly referring to like passages from their work or was it a feeling that you got from their work that you're trying to convey in in the in the works
1: well, I think for me it was different. With Chris Abani. each one, it's a different realization, but there was this texture in that book and of this character's life negotiating this, this shanty in Lagos. And, Every in the kind of um, labyrinthine experience that this child is experiencing, and all the and all the levels of that, all the kind of um, and to me, this painting had this that had that palette to it. Um, it reminded me a lot of that book, and I had read that book around the same time that I completed it. So that was the case there. That's similar, I think, for Brenda Lozano in her book Loop, and. Um, this idea of repeating these, these 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 things that repeat and become these kind of repeat narratives in time, um, maybe that was a bit of a more of a conceptual stretch between like the visuality of this painting, but the visuality of the painting I think really referred to that. And I loved how she goes way back; she goes to you know Penelope, she goes that far back to like the weaving there and and the Odyssey. So so that was a super interesting uh, place. And then Jasmine Ward her book was the kind of abstraction that she suggests in the imaginary of previous haunting and how she brings that up as a character like as an abstract live character in 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 the narrative of this novel to me it 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 felt the most parallel to what i was to to what i to maybe there's an effort of that in painting and this idea that I would bring up with the blur and the haunting of what else is possible in that past, right. by in in this moment, by by the past being present. And um, I think she really was able to do that in Sing Unburied Sing in a really, to me, it was a very moving way that she did that.
0: So from what you're saying, and, and I love this, it seems like it's not like you start out by saying, I am going to create a work in which I will refer to this or that novel as part of the process of making these things seep in and they become important to you.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they become somewhat even like like with Brenda's book. I had read it a year before, but then when I was looking at the painting, that book came to me when I was titling the painting and it became, it, there were so many re- connections with that. So, yeah, it's much more of an embedded experience.
0: Let's talk about music. Um, which music or other audio do you listen to as you're working?
1: I used to listen to only music and various types of music. And then I now listen to a lot of podcasts as well and books on tape and um, articles, depending on what where I am and where, what how where I need to be. Um, but the music is really an enormous range from, you know, African spiritual music to Afro-Peruvian to... Um, uh, what I mean, really like recently, because I've been watching these uh, recent Steve McQueen flicks, I've been really immersed in lovers rock (laughs) and like going back and listening to like all this old studio one and finding all these early songs and trying to get the records. And that's been a big part of my playlist. Um, but I am a child, first-generation child of hip-hop. That's always been something that I go to. And when there are certain times where I want certain kinds of albums to be part of where I am. And then other times it's like just getting lost in, you know mad lib collection of beats and and samples and i think the one thing that i don't listen to as much as i wish i did was classical music and um i feel like that becomes this experience that i have when i go to hear live music and i but i don't listen to it recorded it that much when i was younger maybe more but not now and I, I was thinking about that the other day maybe that's something i need to kind of think about again but
0: but will you put like so for instance i mean this is a question that i've, that I've got really interesting responses too on, on on this podcast is like the, the the way that music can precipitate certain moods, you know. Like so mm. Rashid Johnson said that he puts funkadelic on at the sort of tail end of a of a painting, almost as a kind of almost celebratory mood. Do you have do you have music that you might huh. inject into the kind of studio Uh, when when you feel like you need a bit of impetus or you feel like you need to shift in mood or whatever
1: yeah that I do that I mean that's interesting you said that I do that and there there it's actually it's just so funny funkadelic because at sunrise another touchstone for me in that way and there are times where I want a certain kind of mood and usually I have to say the weather participates with that it's not just what what I'm doing in the studio it's I have these big windows and the the mood and the weather really affects what I put on to play. And if I'm listening on my headphones or I'm listening on the record player in the studio or if I'm listening just to whatever streaming in the studio live, I only recently, though, got into Spotify. Because of some newer friends I've made who've used Spotify a lot more. And so what I found interesting about that is this kind of different way of finding new music, like in this more like as a flaneur almost, like as this way of just kind of coming through things. But I really feel like when I when I'm in that space where I want a certain kind of energy in the painting and and if it's like I want to put on Biggie Smalls or I want to put on, you know, uh, sunra or i want to go back to anina simone whatever it is there's these times where there are those kinds of albums that that you know will take you into a place of a focus or you'll get lost in a recent a recent um artist i've been listening to over and over is john john armatrading like that's been this really great sound to have back in the studio and to have back in life i guess in general oh, that's great but really
0: getting lost. Yeah. You showed a fantastic painting in London um, not that long ago called A Love Supreme, and I presume that's a Coltrane reference. Yes, yes, for sure. So did, was was that sort of on in the studio as you were as you were making the work, or was it or was it sort of again like rather like at the end of the process? You thought actually this you know that that's that's the title that suits this painting.
1: Yeah, that painting, as I finished it, it, there was something, it just came to me. I love Supreme. Like, And I was thinking, of course, Coltrane. And we played it. I played it in the studio. But it was also, it, it was after I had finished the painting. It wasn't something I was listening to a while. But, there, but again, it's this weird thing that happens with the colors and with what happens textually in the painting and how it brings up this referent for me.
0: I wanted to ask you about that very special collaboration with jason moran because yeah. there's a wonderful video online and i really urge our listeners to to seek it out where you're making those extraordinary paintings that you made for sf moma and jason's there in that church that you were making those works sort of tinkling away be, playing these beautiful jazz chords on 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 offender roads and it just tell me about that experience because it looks just so wonderful in that video
1: How lucky was I to have Jason Moran come to my studio every other week or so and just serenade me while I painted from the balcony of this cathedral that we were in, this church, this decommissioned church. It was incredible. It was one of the most beautiful, creative moments that I've had. Uh, I feel really lucky for that. But what Jason had reached out before and wanted to like work together in somehow or another. And um, I wanted to do something with him. And we hadn't found the right, right context. And when I was making this painting and going to be working in this church, I thought um, I reached out to him and said, you know, do you want to try and see if we can do something without really having any parameters or real ideas of what we wanted to do? And in a way, for him, he set it up as just this exploratory studio space. And I, he would come and work. Sometimes it was several times a week. Sometimes it was every other week, or whatever it was. And come in the morning, bring his coffee. I'd be there. Sometimes he'd go when I wasn't. And I, and there was the first time we did it, I felt pretty self conscious and shy. I it was sitting in my chair. And Jason, I think, is much more used to collaborating riffing off other artists and doing this kind of improvisation and and being able to improvise like that with other artists and riff off of each other this is like p- part of his practice right performative practice and I was sitting there on the chair looking at this enormous painting feeling like I can easily listen to something and get lost but I didn't know how to do that while he was playing and then he just kept playing but there was almost this insistence like get up now come on now like <laughs> get, get on with it and and at some point I just started, I just got up and got on my lift and started working. And then there was this getting completely lost, that getting into that flow that we were talking about early on in the podcast, where he was lost in his making, I was lost in what I was doing. And there wasn't this self-consciousness of me making, and and it wasn't like I was making what he was playing, but there was this, almost this kind of just working in tandem, side by side. Um, and it felt like almost a different sense emerged from myself, like a sense of hearing your marks, but not really it, it was it, it was this very weird synchronicity that happened, and it was super. Super interesting. And I hope we get to do something like that again, because it was really really amazing to experience that.
0: What really struck me was that he said that he kind of read your marks as a kind of score, as you were referring to earlier, these kind of characters are a kind of form of notation. And he responded to that. And I love that, that somehow... Um, he's able, and I've seen him do it with Joan Jonas too. That he's able to sort of transfer a kind of connect, a visual connection into sound. It seems to me to be sort of just a like a beautiful connection between art, visual art, and, and and sound. You know,
1: I think that's very generous of him to say that because I think there is also the room and the environment and the and the time that we were working. We were doing this right after Trump won the election, and this was after you know this really intense year of a lot of this kind of. Um, a lot of really disgusting stuff that was being that that was brought up in the Trump campaign, and so it was it was it was kind of an enormous defeat for Trump to win, and um, and so we we're working in that context, in this context of this kind of bringing up of those ghosts that I was talking about earlier, and I was painting in that context, and I think that there's that that there was this place of synchronicity that we were working within. And then there was kind of the informing one another. But I think Jason is being very generous in referring to the work as this as the score, because I think that he led also as much as he like, <laughs> as much as he responded to something.
0: <laughs> what other media influence your work?
1: I mean, I think film and, and video and television, and but all of that becomes part of what informs who one is and how one experiences and makes sense of everything. And I think like, again, it's about this kind of letting go of the kind of effort of self-consciously letting something influence something and allowing it to just be part of that texture of time and 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 place that one is working within. So I feel that way with with whatever it is that I'm engaged with. It's like just to be as as engaged and as open and as kind of curious as possible. And through that, there become these really chance encounters and chance kind of revelations or, you know, and, and ways that things kind of tag into one another and tie into one another.
0: I was wondering about your experience working with Peter Sellers on that opera and how that, I know that when you hear other artists like David Hockney, for instance, and Howard Hodgkin talking about designing for the stage, it expanded their kind of the realm of their language. But also it was a terrific challenge because suddenly there was, a, it, you know, it, it was about a collaboration. It was about expanding the format. It was working to prescribed conditions in a way you might not when you're working in the studio.
1: Absolutely, to me that was so instructive, and I think the color in my blurred painting comes directly from that experience of working with the stage and the lighting that could be possible with the painting. So, working with Peter and working with the opera, I had made two paintings. They were grayscale paintings. Um, one had a lot of white and black paint in the gray on the gray material, and and it was a smaller a smaller set, and then the larger set was a much larger gray. Um, and black painting that had these kind of bits of pink and white going through them, but they were very, very subtle. They're, they were mostly these these grayscale paintings, and we had them as the backdrops. Like the, the set was only this one painting, and the entire the the opera was minimal. I mean, it was uh, two singers, and 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 the second set had two singers and a dancer, and. I think um with this incredible soundscape what animated this painting and this 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 translucent scrim that the painting could be completely solid on but then well completely translucent and you could get lost inside the layers and Peter really played with those two spaces the the, the the solidity of the painting, the in-frontness of the painting, and then the kind of interior space of the painting and what happens inside. And then the light. And so the light constantly evolved from oranges into pinks and greens and blues and whatever it was in different areas. And the way that the paint picked up on that light completely, I think, is part of the role of the intense color that emerged in the paintings after working with him. But It also became this way to think really differently about the space of painting, the interiority of painting and the front of that stage. And what happened, I think, with the the body in the painting, that I think became somewhat of a formative kind of thing that came out later in my paintings as well. It's just interesting to to think about that later, how much that became such an influence, um, that experience. I hope that I have more of those experiences, yeah, because it was really formative and it was really amazing. It was being embedded inside of a whole different way of imagination, the kind of imaginatory space of sound and, and what can evolve in that. It was great.
0: Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual?
1: Well, there's several. I mean, I meditate now, which I think is really important to just stay. <laughs> it really got me through this last couple of years. That's something that I that I really lean on. But also in the studio, when I get into the studio usually before I'm about to begin working, I have to kind of clean up a little bit. And there's it doesn't matter how clean it is. I'm always like cleaning up a little bit more. And I feel like that's about listening to something and just kind of getting into your spot and maybe you know nestling in somehow and and that usually gets me into the place where I'm looking at the painting from the side from the front like, uh, rearranging things and it's so, and i feel sometimes like it's so silly how much you keep rearranging your things but it's this way of kind of loosening up like it's like early exercises or something there's there is that and and usually I'm listening to kind of the news, morning news or something like that, a conversation about the news, something like that as the, as I'm doing that. And then I get kind of called into the work.
0: If you could live with one work of art, what would it be?
1: It's a hard question to answer. Maybe it would be the Wanda Barrera or it would be the David Hammonds. Probably the David Hammonds. But I do like, yeah, that Wanda Barrera is such an important painting to me. And I think I would want to always have that lesson in my life, yeah.
0: It's an extraordinary picture, isn't it? Because there is no sort of noble depiction of a black man in Spanish art up until that point, you know. And then there was obviously that very particular relationship where he was he was an enslaved man who was employed by Velazquez and then eventually set free by Velazquez. So it's sort of a terrifically important journey, that relationship between the artist and the sitter.
1: Yeah. Yeah, to me that and how dehumanized somebody becomes in being somebody's object and being somebody's slave, being enslaved to someone else. And yet the deep humanity with which he's painted in that kind of, you know, the kind of profound breath that he's about to take, the expression of his eyes, the touch of his mouth, this awareness of that deep sense of being. And yet the contradiction inherent in that by being the object of one, by being one's Enslaved person and being one slave, and to me that there, there's this that contradiction, and is 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 part of the contradiction in the history of art, and as it's something that kind of I'm always amazed by, but also moved by, and um, it helps me kind of find my place in the world. I think in a way that that we live in these contradictions constantly. We are constantly inventing within them and trying to, you know, locate ourselves in that space.
0: And lastly. What is art for?
1: I think art is to help with that space of, of living in this kind of constant con- place of contradictions. And art provides this way of making sense of that, but also art becomes somewhat of a, of a bomb and a saving kind of... It provides something else. It provides a form of liberation in that somehow. It provides a place of, of freedom and possibility that is necessary whatever that art is whether you're one making it expressing it performing it singing it whatever it is but that invention of some other possibility that invention of freedom that invention of a way out invention of a different reflection of self all of those reasons art provides this other way of being able to be
0: well judy thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you Julie Merity's exhibition is at the Whitney Museum of American Art from the 25th of March until the 8th of August and it will travel to the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis opening on the 16th of October and continuing until the 6th of March 2022. And those murals with Afro-futurist angels that Julie was referring to but couldn't remember the name of the artists are by Pietro Cavallini and they're in the Basilica of Santa Cecilia in Trastevere in Rome. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Judy Mihouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Judy Meriti. Join us on Friday for the Week in Art and on Wednesday next week for the next A Brush With. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world go to corkstreetgalleries.com